Well, if you would, grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. If you're going to use the pew Bibles in front of you, I believe you'll find that on page 893. working through the end of chapter 12, but I'll read the end of chapter 11 here to begin with. Acts eleven nineteen through 30. Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word among, only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Well, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, many of you know that I've been working on uh, writing a thesis for a seminary this last year or so. And so this recent chapter that I've been working on, I've been reading a fair bit of Puritan John Owen. See, my thesis is on Bible interpretation, and Owen wrote a great deal about and thought a great deal about rightly interpreting the Bible. But what Owen's kind of unique contribution was, is that Owen said that the interpreter is only as good as his holiness, you might say. Uh, that o- Owen spends so much time of the work he wrote, the 200 pages on Bible interpretation, the first 150 is speaking about the necessity of holiness, of ongoing sanctification. And then when he finally gets to the tools of how to interpret the Bible, he spits those out in a few pages and turns back to holiness yet again. Well, Owen was so passionate about his pursuit of holiness and his realization that he did not always meet up to what he saw the standard was. In one of his letters, he wrote to a friend and asked for help, that his friend would pray for him to grow in holiness. And he wrote this, I do acknowledge unto you that I have a dry and barren spirit. And I do heartily beg your prayers that the Holy One would, notwithstanding all my sinful provocations, water me from above. Owen knew the first step of rightly interpreting the word is a humble, grateful heart. That is first seeking to treasure God before treasuring right answers about God. And that's why I find Owen to be such a treat. In his mini-biography of Owen, John Piper explains why personal holiness should continue to be so important for us today. Other than the fact that Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord, Piper goes on to say that there is a shortage of holiness, particularly in our political and ecclesiastical leaders today. The quest for holiness is just not something that seems to be central all the times in those spheres. 
So writing back in 2018, Piper continues, quote, in recent years, even a president of the United States has clearly communicated that he did not think his personal morality was a significant factor in his leadership of the nation. And Piper responds, Owen would have been astonished at such a thought. Let's give you one more example of how Owen reacted in his own day to a lack of holiness among political leaders. Please indulge me a brief British history lesson. So Owen was selected to preach before the British Parliament in 1646. And that sermon propelled him into the national spotlight. So much so that Oliver Cromwell, the leader of the New Model Army, who would eventually replace Charles I as Lord Protector, the most powerful man really in all of Britain, took John Owen to be his personal chaplain in his following battles during the British Civil War. So Oliver Cromwell is an incredibly powerful man, and he brings Owen with him. And Owen serves as his chaplain as he goes off, particularly in his wars against the Royalists in Ireland and Scotland. And Owen was appalled at some of the ways that that fight was taken, taking place. And so in 1650, when he went and preached before Parliament again, he rebukes Parliament for their war effort in Ireland. And this is what he said. Friends, how is it that Jesus Christ is in Ireland only as a lion staining his garments with the blood of his enemies? And no one to hold him out as the lamb sprinkled with his own blood to his friends. Is this to deal fairly with the Lord Jesus? I mean, God hath been faithful in doing great things for you. Oh, friends, be faithful in this one thing. Do your utmost to preach the gospel in Ireland. It's risking your life to speak that before a parliament who's condoning this war in Ireland and Scotland. You see, Owen's desire for holiness meant he was willing to lose cultural power. And eventually he did. He'd been dean and vice chancellor of Oxford University, and he was removed for critiquing Cromwell and his family. And he was relegated to pastoring small little parish churches, which eventually became illegal and had to be in hiding, essentially. The reason I bring all this up is for us as Americans, in an election year, it is important that we be reminded that cultural power is not what the Bible would have us pursue. And our passage this morning will actually demonstrate this reality because it will show Christians suffering a great deal under the rulers of their day. And yet their response is not the way that our modern conversation tends to go. See, instead of seeking to fight the power or take the reins of the culture, instead these Christians focus on partnering with other Christians and praying to God in the midst of tribulation and trusting judgment to Jesus. And so that's actually the title of the sermon is Partnering Amidst Tribulation. That's really the big idea of this chapter and a half. And my argument to us from this passage is this, that Christians, we are to partner while tribulations rage by entrusting judgment to Jesus. Vengeance is his. And we'll walk through uh, this passage in the following three points you can see up there on the board. So first, the one I, I read, Christians Partnering. This section begins, if you notice, by backing up in the narrative to chapter 7, where we read about the martyrdom of Stephen. What we find out there is the church had scattered a great deal. And here we learn that some of those who scattered began preaching the gospel as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And at first it says that they just preached only to Jews. And the NIV, unfortunately, it misses the, the but in the original. Verse 20 is meant to surprise you. They preached only to Jews, but uh, there were some who also preached the gospel to the Gentiles as well. See, we had just read last week in chapter 10 of Peter and the church in Jerusalem. They've come to understand that the mission 
to the Gentiles had received God's divine sanction. I mean, they experienced the Gentile Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles there in Cornelius' house. So, now that the church has officially come to understand God's mission to Jew and Gentile, uh, now we back up, we learn, oh, there's already been kind of a mission to Gentiles as well. And verse 21 explains, the Lord's hand was with them. Now notice, these are non-ordained, non-sent missionaries. They're just Christians being Christians among the Gentiles. And because of that, the Lord had blessed their faithful ministry, their faithful being Christians there in Antioch, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord Jesus. Well, since the church in Jerusalem has come to understand this Gentile inclusion, and then word reaches them, they have no problem sending out some of their best people to help serve this sister church. And due to, due to the kind of pioneering nature of the book of Acts, we see Jerusalem church there kind of serves as almost a mother church at first, though later we're going to see other churches send aid back, and so it shifts a bit. But upon arriving, did you catch what Barnabas saw? Barnabas saw what the grace of God had done. The grace of God is personified as an active agent. God's grace had caused these belief of these Gentiles. And so Barnabas shows up and he, he doesn't do ministry. He sees what ministry has been done. And then he responds, living out his name of encourager, by encouraging them. And he says he encouraged them specifically to remain true with all their hearts. Here's why that specific encouragement would have been necessary. Because they lived in a very pluralistic and idolatrous world. A world where emperors are worshipped. And they're not yet commanded to be worshipped, but they will soon enough. Uh, where there's gods of the emperors all over the place. As a matter of fact, their world recommends or re resembles ours in many things. If anything, our modern world is probably even more idolatrous. I mean, given the advances of technology, we are constantly confronted with innumerable things vying for our hearts and affections. I wonder, friends, how many of you ever had one of those weeks where you were just completely content until you see an advertisement? You ever had one of those weeks? I mean, there's this thing that you didn't even know it existed two minutes ago, but once you've seen that ad, now your heart is deeply longing for this thing, and you are no longer content. Am I the only one who's had a week like that? Give me a nod or something. Now, friends, modern advertising has actually intentionally taken advantage of psychology to seek to press us and pressure us and to ramp up the idolatry of consumerism and materialism. Uh, one author who's written on this is Robert Cialdini. He wrote a book, The Psychology of Persuasion, and he tells this old story. Uh, it wouldn't work in our day because we have the internet, but back before the internet was a thing, most of you can remember this. Uh, so what happened is, is that toy stories, what, or toy stories, what they would do is they'd put an advertisement for the new toy that every kid had to have, and they'd start running the ads during the cartoon hour uh, in late November, early December. And kids would go to parents, and they'd say, you got to give me this toy, you got to give me this toy. And the parents were throwing, well, Christmas is coming up around the corner. We'll get it for you. What the toy manufacturer did was they intentionally sold, sent a small number of those toys to the stores. So the parents show up early December to go buy them, and chances are they weren't there. And they say, yeah, it looks like the new shipment's not going to get in until after the first of the year. But we have these. So now the parent buys this new toy for Christmas. And the kid says, but you promised. So now the parent has to spend twice as much money, and the store guarantees that they get profits in January and February too. Brilliant marketing horrendous idolatry. But, but here's the point, is we have used, this world has just used all these things we can to seek to draw us in to more idolatry. And don't think for a second that things have improved now that we have the internet. Every click and search you make 
The computer is running its algorithm to figure out how best to market to you. Now, do you see what happens here? Luke is showing us how important it is for Christians to be content, to be satisfied, to be encouraged, to press on in the Lord. And Luke particularly tells us with the rest of this little section about a central means that God uses for this encouragement is godly teachers in a local church. That's why immediately afterwards, it gives Barnabas's character and qualifications. He says, Barnabas was a good man. That's only used twice in the whole book. What they needed was a good preacher, a good man, a godly man with good character to lead them. But get this, Barnabas is doing good work, and yet he knows he's not enough. So he leaves good, fruitful ministry to go to Tarsus to find Saul and to bring him back. Because what's the most important thing that Christians need to be encouraged? They need godly pastors. That's, that's what the picture is here. And also this is setting us up for, for later on down the road when it will become explicit that leadership in a local church is a plurality of elders. I've said before, in the New Testament, an elder is a pastor, a pastor is an elder. And here we get this picture of Barnabas and Saul for a year teaching in that local church, picturing what will become the necessary plurality of eldership down the road. See, even though Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, even though he was seeking great results, he knew that a plurality of leadership was needed. And so he went off and he got Saul. And they taught, and a great number in Antioch came to faith. And that's where they were first called Christians. Now, it's been well said that the label Christians, we don't know if it was a, a, a derisive comment or a positive comment, um, but, but either way, Christians are cast in this story as a third race. So you have Gentile and Jew that started the story, but here they became called Christians uh, because they're neither, but they're both. Here, they were called Christians. And as a final part of the partnership that takes place here, what we see in that last section is that Jerusalem not only sent Barnabas, one of their best but they also, it says, sent some prophets who came down from Jerusalem. So notice, the Jerusalem church is sending their best to help this new church plant, even though it's a predominantly Gentile church plant. They're sending some of the most gifted to this new church so that these people will be well-taught and cared for. What are we to make of these prophets, though? Well, this is an area where Christians disagree. And some would understand the gift of prophet or prophets continues to operate today in some sense. Uh, and some would argue that, that that happens, and yet it happens in a different way than in the Old Testament. So that the people who make the best case for this, what they're arguing is that in the Old Testament, when a prophet said, thus says the Lord, it got written in the book. It was God's word. But in the New Testament, when a prophet speaks, it's more of like a, a highly probable. Um, so a prophet could be wrong. And they, they make a whole big argument for that. And the reason they make that argument is because they're trying to protect God's word. So I want to thank them that, that that's how they're proposing it. And they're seeking to make sure that new prophets don't add to the Bible. Now, I grew up in that tradition, but I've come to say that I think the gift of prophecy found in Agabus and a few other people here in the book of Acts has ceased, or maybe better, shifted. And here's, here's one of the main reasons why. If you read Ephesians 2.20, Paul writes that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And even if you're not a builder, you know that a foundation doesn't keep going through the rest of the building. Once a foundation is laid, it's laid for good. And so I would say that with the picture you're getting here in the book of Acts is exactly that. This first Gentile church plant that really is taking place and being supported from Jerusalem in this way, you have a foundation being laid of apostles and prophets. But that's not going to continue. But while I say it's not going to continue, I also want to put in a caveat and say, actually, I think it's better to say it's shifted. And here's what I mean. All Christians serve as prophets, priests, and kings. First Peter 2 explicitly tells us we are a kingdom of priests. 
So I would say is every Christian who is a member of a local church, every time that we gather together and we welcome in a new member, we are speaking with Jesus's kingly authority. And we're saying, we believe you have the right gospel message. So we speak for heaven and we say, you welcome into the fold. When a local church has to enact church discipline or remove somebody for ongoing unrepentance, they speak with heaven's authority. That's what Matthew 18 says. And we all have a priestly role. We are those who intercede for each other through prayer and care. Well, similarly, as we read back in Acts 2 at Pentecost, we heard that the prophecy of Joel was fulfilled, that your sons and daughters would prophesy. But the difference now that we're all prophets is now that the word is complete, well, friend, anytime you share a Bible verse or an encouragement with someone else from the word, you are saying, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Here's how you can be encouraged. Thus says the Lord, he is still sovereign in the midst of your suffering. So I would say is since we are all prophets, priests, and kings in that way, yes, I, I think there's a good argument to be made that there's that essence that goes on. I don't believe the foretelling or foretelling element is something that continues beyond here's what the word says and here's how we apply it to our lives. But I would say this means that every Christian then is called to be growing in our knowledge and handling of God's words. So we can be those who prophesy well to each other. That we can allow God's word to be the word that speaks through us. I mean, after all, this is the greatest encouragement we could possibly give, is it not? So friends, by treasuring up God's word in our hearts, we're able to be those who declare, thus says the Lord. We're able to speak gracious words like Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. So Christian, practically I wonder, how are you seeking to grow in your knowledge and handling of God's word this year? That you might speak words of life from the word of life to your fellow Christians. Uh, have you considered joining one of the men's or women's Bible studies? Or joining a community group? And I would encourage you to seek to grow in the word this year with other fellow Christians, brothers and sisters. If you can't make those, find a time to read through the Bible with another Christian. Press in. Seek to memorize certain passages. Talk to Tim. Tim's got all sorts of scripture memorized and he'll tell you ways to go about doing it. But seek to press on that we can be those prophets, those speakers of thus says the Lord to each other for the building up of the body. Well, in this first section, we've seen how Christians have been partnering. And now in the second section, we're going to see in the midst of tribulations raging. Let's look at Acts 12, 1 through 19a. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. And Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. And they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city, and it opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches. And 
from everything that the Jewish people were hoping would happen to me. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. And Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and the servant named Rada came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. And Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to, who, uh, as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Reading the story at face value, we see a wicked king seeking to wield political power for his own benefit, right? First we read King Herod, and he's kind of framed as the king of the Jews. What I mean is he's their king and that he does what they like. He persecutes Christians, even though the Christians were ethnically Jewish there in Jerusalem. And he even has James put to death with a sword. Upon doing this, he sees how pleased the people were. And so he says, hey, let's do this again. Let's rally my base. And so he arrests Peter. And he plans to bring Peter out after the festival of unleavened bread to have him put to death. And Peter is said is guarded by four squads of four. And the reason for that is there's four night watches. Two of them are chained to his side and two of them are outside the door. He wants to make sure that Peter stands trial. It's a total kangaroo trial. He's going to get put to death no matter what. But that's what he wants. And so the picture of Herod is he's the populist king. He's the people's king. Unlike Jesus, he's the king who gives the people what they want. And what we see with this setting in place, we learn that the Christians were partnering. They were praying for Peter. The church there in Jerusalem was praying earnestly to God. Now, we don't know exactly what they were praying for. Uh, were they praying that Peter would stand firm in the faith to the end? Were they praying that, that somehow Herod might let him go? They're definitely astonished when he shows up, so it doesn't seem like they were praying for a miraculous release. But whatever it is, they were partnering with Peter in prayer. Well, the night before, Herod planned to have Peter brought out for this kangaroo trial. We read of an angel arriving and rescuing Peter. The angel strikes him on the side and tells him to literally get up quickly. And his chains fall off, and then the angel has to tell him to get dressed. And Peter does so, and at first he thinks it's a dream, and they mosey out of the prison, and eventually the angel just disappears. So Peter goes to the other Christians, the house at John Mark, where they're praying. He knocks, the servant girl Rada comes and opens the door for, or doesn't open the door. She's excited and runs back inside, right? And then Peter persists in knocking until they open up the gate. The people, this is one of those startling scenes, and I'm not going to speak to it because I don't know what the answer is, but I love when they say, oh, it might be his angel. No idea what that means. Uh, some have said, is it his guardian angel? Is it, uh, is it a messenger? Because the word could be, I have no idea what it means. But anyway, the story, I tell this story just to say, it's like, it, it seems pretty straightforward on the face of it. It's just telling a story. Or is it? Because as we start to look closer, as we consider how Luke's theology has been unfolding in this book, there's something else going on here. See, I've said multiple times in our studying of Acts so far that Luke is constantly drawing from Isaiah and his second exodus motif or theme. So the exodus is the famous event that gets people out of, uh, Israel out of Egypt. And then Isaiah prophesies that there's going to be a second exodus. And Luke is constantly reaching back and drawing those themes. I've tried to show them over and over again in the first 10, 11 chapters of this book. Well, now Luke casts Peter as the true Israelite going through his exodus. And then 
Herod and Jews are cast as Pharaoh in Egypt. Or in other words, the seed of the serpent. Let me show you why I think this is the case. First, if you've seen, the king and the Jews are pleased at the persecution and killing of James. So no matter what you do, clearly Israel, the Jews there in Jerusalem, and Herod are now the seed of the serpent. They're the ones who are persecuting the seed of the woman, the, the, the people of God. Uh, but particularly, we're told that Peter's arrested during the festival of unleavened bread. Well, friends, that's Passover. That's the very feast that the Exodus inaugurated. And just as Israel was delivered right after Passover, ah, isn't it interesting that Peter's delivered right after Passover? A second, have you ever read this story and wondered why the angel gives the instructions he does? I mean, first we read the angel shows up in a cell where Peter's chained two guards and two guards outside, and a bright light shines, and he's like, quick, get up, get dressed, we gotta go. Why would he say, quick, get up? He's clearly supernaturally releasing him, and his chains fall off. The guards, I mean, why? Well, did you know that that's the same language used in the Exodus? They had to, they had to eat with their belt on tight, and the sandals strapped, and the staff in hand. They had to eat so they could get up and quickly get out. Isn't that interesting? So just as Israel had their chains fall off in bondage when they were let out by an angel, so too did Peter's chains fall off from his bondage as he's let out by an angel. Do you see the parallels? Luke's casting this intentionally as Peter being the faithful Israelite who's being exodused and let out. Uh, Look at verse 11 again. Verse 11, Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches. That's pulled right from the Greek of the Exodus, speaking of Pharaoh's clutches of the angel or of Israel. Uh, so, Patrick Schreiner and others have noted Luke is intentionally using the language from the Exodus to make these connections for us, so that the Jews of Jerusalem and Herod are pictured as the Egyptians. They're pictured as the seed of the serpent attacking God's seed of the woman. And Schreiner even wonders. Uh, I wonder if the angel's command is a bit of a critique to Peter. Peter, you know it's Passover. Passover, you eat with your belt on and your sandals tied. Quick, put your belt on your sandals. You know this is what you do on Passover, perhaps. Finally, however it works out, but Peter's leaving Jerusalem is fascinating because why were they exodus in the first place? Well, to go into the promised land. And yet Peter leaves out of the jail and into the new promised land. He goes to the church, which is the new Jerusalem. It is where God's people are gathered, his spirit indwelt people. And that's why Peter can go to them and say, tell James I'm going somewhere else. Because the promised land is no longer a physical earthly land. It's where other gods, spirit indwelt people are gathered to worship him. That's what we've been seeing over and over again in the book of Acts. These are the new temple people. Wherever the spirit gathers his people. Now you might be wondering, okay, so why? Let's just say that's true. Why would Luke do all this stuff and cast it in this way? Good question. Here's why. Because in the story of Acts, we're about to turn a page. Starting in Acts chapter 13, the narrative is all about beyond Jerusalem. And so the only way you can have a promised people in a promised land beyond Jerusalem is if there's a promised land that's beyond Jerusalem, wherever God's people gather to worship the Son. In other words, this story is showing us, as in the, back in the days of Ezekiel, that Jerusalem has become an idolatrous den of iniquity and murder. After all, Jesus had already called down a curse on it in Matthew 25. Had he not? And they're continuing to be a murderous, idolatrous people here. They have rejected Jesus, the only name by which anyone can be saved. Peter and the apostles have been diligent. They've been seeking to gather the remnant of Israel, as we've seen through all these chapters. chapters. And sure enough, there will continue to be a church there, to be a light in the midst of that dark city. 
But the city, the earthly city, is no longer central to God's purposes. Now it's the heavenly Jerusalem that matters because that is where our citizenship is. Is that not what Paul says? Our citizenship is in heaven? That's why Luke frames the story this way. And this ties back into something I brought up at the beginning. How are Christians meant to live in this world with devils filled? Friends, it's not by going on a trip to land at a particular place to see God work. Oh, praise God for history, and we rejoice in those things. But friends, as you zoom out and see the big picture that runs across the Bible, what you see is the same narratives played out over and over again. That the seed of the woman is being hunted by the seed of the serpent. When we studied through Genesis, that's what we saw. That, that, that seed was planted, pun intended, that the seed of the woman is going to be pursued by the seed of the serpent. And as we know, in Exodus, Pharaoh is that seed of the serpent. Why? Because he wears a crown with a snake on it, that's why. And because he's trying to kill the, the, the woman's seed, the, the seed of the woman. And of course, we know in the story of the Bible that Jesus is the true seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent by destroying and conquering sin and death and hell. Oh yes, he'll bring a full and final end later. What about in the meantime? Well, that's what chapter, this chapter is showing us. How to live like this in the meantime. And if we had the time, I'd show you what the commentary on this chapter is actually Revelation 12, 13, and 14. And that shows that the battle continues. Because there, at the beginning of that chapter, 12, there's the birth of Jesus. And after his birth, Satan and his demons are cast out of heaven. And after Jesus has ascended, what happens? The dragon serpent goes off and pursues who? Christians. Revelation 12, 17. The dragon pursues and makes war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So they're Christians. Then chapters 13 and 14 of Revelation go on and tell you the means of how it is that the dragon seeks to make his attack on Christians. And that's what we're seeing here in this section of what Herod's doing. And the means is this. There's two beasts. One beast is false religion and one beast is false government. And they blend together and they use each other to seek to persecute God's people. That's what Herod's doing here. This is a picture and Revelation 12, 13, 14 is a commentary basically explaining how this works. Herod is an example of this very thing. He, he's a beast, like the one that John wrote about in Revelation, just like the Roman emperors later who are going to demand worship. Isn't that what Herod's going to go on to do in a minute? At the end of this chapter, he's going to rejoice in being worshipped. See, anyone who would not worship is persecuted. Here's why I bring all this up. This pattern that runs through the whole Bible is being highlighted here to show us of how we live between the resurrection and the return. And the pattern is going to continue down through history. And go back and look at the videos of the kids singing to Hitler, calling him their Messiah and their Lord. Go look up some of the details about the Kim family in North Korea and how they worship the Kim family oh, over and over again. But don't stop there. Let's take a closer look at our political leaders. Now, I'm about to say something that is not partisan, at all. I could say this of either party, and I could find a whole bunch of examples from both parties. So listen to my argument, not my words, or however that works. If you've seen the recent ad that Donald Trump put out called God Made Trump, I don't know how else to explain it other than it is blasphemous, antichrist nonsense. Go, go look at the ad. I mean, I say it borders on the spirit of Antichrist because Trump in the middle is claimed to be the shepherd given, made by God. He casts himself as Jesus. It is reprehensible. 
And though maybe he's not demanding worship, anybody who disagrees with him sure gets treated a lot like the guards get treated from Herod. Now again, I could call out ads from Biden and all of them, right? All of them. My point is simply this. Christian, let us not close our eyes to the events that are happening in front of us and pretend that it's only North Korea who has leaders demanding worship or that it's only Hitler and it's only the Roman emperors and it's only Herod. From this election year, make sure that when you go to the ballot box, you do so with your eyes open, not your head bowed. Oh yes, bow and pray that God would lead, that God would be king. But we are not voting in a king. And we had to be very, very, very careful about how we approach these conversations. Hold your positions. Be a good citizen. Yes, absolutely. But friends, be very aware. They are vying for your hearts. They want your worship. So we have to learn how to live in that world where our leaders are setting themselves up more and more like antichrists. And here's why this is important. Because the Christians here, notice what they don't do. They don't try and fight the culture war. They don't petition. They don't storm the capital of Herod's gates. No, what do they do? They pray. They pray and they submit to God. Friends, the only Christian nation is the church. And we are an international nation because we are a kingdom of priests and we have one king. He's the only one who deserves our worship. So be a citizen and vote. But do so trusting in only one king. We pray for our leaders. And regardless who wins in November, I'm going to pray for them on Sunday morning because we're commanded to do so. And that's how we should approach it. But we should pray first and foremost that God would prepare them that they would be ready to meet their king because all of our earthly leaders will stand before Jesus and they will either be made a footstool for his feet and be judged or they will say, praise God that you are the real king and I sought to lead as an under-shepherd of your kingdom. Okay, we've seen Christians partnering for mission in the midst of tribulation raging, even though the beastly world rulers are raging and here's what the Christians do. Finally, they let Jesus be the one who is judging. Look at 12, 19 through 25. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon and now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing support from Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Hitler did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. While Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Well, Herod here again is pictured as the beast, raging. He first rages against the guards, executing them because they let Peter go, and then he goes off to rage somewhere else. The, the NIV puts it, he had quarreled with them. Now, literally, it's he is very angry with them. And when the beasts fail to kill God's people, they take out their rage anywhere. And that's what he's doing here. 
And so we read, he, he goes down to Caesarea, and the people sought an audience with him. They convinced his, his right-hand man, one of his helpers, to, to speak with him because Herod was so angry. And the issue was is that Tyre depended upon the king for their food supply. So they sought a way in so they could get an audience with him, so they could calm him, and they could restore their food. All the language here is picturing Herod as a false god. He's wearing kingly robes. He's sitting in a throne or seat of judgment and the people worship him, and he loves it. Now, Luke's account is completely supported by a secular Jewish historian back in Jesus or Paul's day named Josephus. And Josephus tells us that the robes were bright silver, and they reflected the sun brilliantly. So he was like hard to look at because he's glittering up there on his, his bima seat, his judgment seat. And Josephus records the crowds as saying a little bit more than what Luke does. Josephus says that they said, be gracious to us, Hitherto we have referenced, reverenced you as a human being, but henceforth we confess you to be of more than mortal nature. And Josephus agrees with Luke that Herod refused to repudiate their adoration and flattery, which led to the king, according to Josephus, being seized with violent internal pains and dying five days later. Both in Luke's account and the secular historian Josephus give us the same account. The only difference is Luke tells us the violent internal pains were a direct judgment from God, that that's why he was struck down. Now, there's some question as to whether or not uh, the Lord striking him in judgment was the worms that ate him and died, or if the language is just saying he is immortal, that's why he died and the worms ate him. Uh, Regardless, the point is clear. All political rulers who seek glory for themselves, all political rulers who seek to gather praise rather than redirect it to God, they will be judged. And Herod is a picture of Antichrist. He's one of the reasons why John could write in his first letter, many antichrists have come. Because any time someone stands up and receives the praise of God that should only go to Jesus, they are acting out the spirit of antichrist. But this does raise a question. I mean, why does the Lord give some wicked rulers such a long leash? Why doesn't he put a stop to all of them like he does here? Why, why strike down Herod and not a Hitler before? Well, the short answer is very similar to what we saw back when we studied Ananias and Sapphira. Is that God is showing that despite appearances, one day everyone will stand before their judge. See, on the one hand, we learn that God is not always going to judge immediately, but that does not at all mean judgment is eternally put off. So we need to realize that just because a ruler is left in power for a long time, it doesn't mean God approves. And we need to see just because a ruler does something we like that does not mean that God approves. It seems, based on the way the story is told, that Herod was doing something nice for the people. He was going to go ahead and fix the, the dispute with them. That doesn't mean that he's God's man. No, it means he was a wicked man who happened to do something good. Over and over again, we read of God wielding wicked rulers for his sovereign purposes. Go home and read Isaiah 10. It tells of God wielding Assyria, the word says, like an axe. And it says he, he wields Assyria like an axe to chop down Israel for their wickedness. And after God has judged Israel with Assyria, he says, and king of Assyria, you were so proud that now I'm going to judge you. Oh, God wields nations. Oh, Psalm 115, 2 and 3. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And sometimes God is pleased to be very patient with wicked leaders and wicked nations. We don't have an answer for why now. And other times... And this is where we learn the lesson of Herod is, don't just think that every death is a natural death. 
Don't just think that just because that guy happened to come out of power, oh, it wasn't that fortuitous. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Now, I'll apply this one more time to us in America. There was a season after World War II in particular where America became thought of as this especially Christian nation and, and claimed like a, an especial support from God. And that kind of language led to a dangerous attitude and claim. Friends, I think a, a more biblically faithful approach would be this. America has received incredible blessings and allowed incredible freedoms. Unlike Nepal, who I prayed for, we are so free. But also, friends, we should at least be willing to ask the hard question. Could it be that America is going to be one of the many nations that has risen and fallen down through the millennia? I mean, friends, could it be that our hope is more in America continuing to be America than it is in God accomplishing his purposes for his glory? We at least need to be able to ask that question. And we need to be able to ask that question without somebody saying that you're, you're unpatriotic. No, I'm just a citizen of another country. Now, we are commanded to pray for our leaders and our nation and pray that we can live peaceful and quiet lives and we can see the gospel flourish here. Yes, and praise God. But notice how subtle the shift is from hoping in the God who gives the gift of freedom to worshiping the gift itself. See, this chapter reveals that even Israel as a earthly nation has become the seed of the serpent. They have joined with the Antichrist king in rejoicing at the murder of an apostle. So friend, let us be ever so careful to make sure that our hope is in God, not in the gift of freedom that he may have given to us. May we never be so dedicated to our nation that we become blind when our leaders start sounding a lot like a Herod or a Hitler, claiming that they're the only hope for our survival. Friends, don't fall for the marketing. Hope in the Lord alone. Because as we see here, for those whose affections remain wholly focused on the Lord, look at verse 24 and 25. This is the end of them. But the word of the Lord, the word of God, continued to spread and flourish. And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. As the nations rage, God's people committed to prayer and committed to mission, they continue to press on. They hope in the Lord. Now, it's fascinating here. Uh, we read of Barnabas and Saul having taken this, this gift, this offering to Jerusalem. Uh, perhaps it's because they were going to get hit harder by the famine uh, or because the persecution's ramping up there and they're not able to buy and sell as much, which is what's going to play out later in the book of Revelation, later on. Uh, whatever the reason, Paul's ministry is bracketed by gifts to Jerusalem. First here, he comes and he gives them a gift, and then he escorts another gift later in Acts 20, before he's arrested and shipped off to Rome. And the picture is this, that churches partner. Uh, that's the picture we have here. Just as Jerusalem sent her best and, and sent off to, to care for them with the, the prophets and Barnabas, now that church is sending back help the other way. Uh, another thing we see here is we see, notice, Barnabas and Paul, they brought John Mark. They, they took him with them. Why? Well, because biblical leaders must always seek to prioritize the training of future leaders. Uh, Paul is going to command this explicitly in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Well, this is an apostolic command that the leaders of a local church are to prioritize the training and discipling of future leaders. 
In fact, the command that, that Paul gives to Timothy is he needs to be able to train leaders who are going to lead for two more generations, train faithful men who are going to train others also. So it is a command of God that that is what churches must do. That they have to prioritize training leaders. I just read an article yesterday about how there's dropping off the rate of, of seminary education and of men going for training. But that's only one part of the training. Friends, at one level, a church who fails to prioritize the training of future pastors is digging their own grave. I mean, sure, God's kindness. I mean, he may sustain a church for generations. But the command is that's what we do. We train men who can train others also. Because that's the Great Commission. It's a church planting mission. And the only way to fulfill the Great Commission then is to plant churches, and churches require pastors. So you have to do both. So some practical ways that we are and need to grow in doing this here at Bethany is, I said before, I'm so grateful for saints in the past who donated to a fund to help train young men to become pastors. But in addition to seminary training, pastors need on-the-job training. Uh, They need elders who are going to prioritize, seeking to disciple them, to to make it a priority of of our ministry to the church is to train future pastors. Uh, A second way we might seek to do this is through partnerships, like you see here, partnering with different churches. You see what happens? Paul and Barnabas come down from Antioch, and they take a young man back with them to Antioch to train him for pastoral ministry. Uh, That's what we see here. So what does it look like to partner with other like-minded churches for the training of pastors, for the planting of churches here in Portland? We definitely need them, but then also in other cities around the country and world. Well, friends, I hope you see how these things have been tying together to support the argument I've been making from this text, that Christians, we partner while tribulation rages by entrusting judgment to Jesus. Jesus. Throughout this section, we've seen Christians partnering and training of future pastors and caring for other local churches. We've seen how even though the tribulation rages around them, the church just presses on. They don't get embroiled and try to win culture wars. They trust Jesus, and they entrust judgment to Jesus. And throughout this whole section, the gospel has been the fuel for everything that's been done. It's just below the surface. Here's why. Why would a church send their best, most gifted people to support another church? Because they know that the Father sent his Son to live and to die for their sins. So how can you not but send your best to support and care for another church? And how can Christians stop from becoming embroiled in the idolatrous political scene all around them? Because they know that Jesus is not only the king who died for them, but rose and reigns on high. Since Jesus is king, we don't need to seek power. And if we die in this life, he's the risen king, and we will be raised with him. See, I opened up snippets about John Owen's ministry, how he went from the halls of power to a quiet life of pastoring and seeking to train up future pastors. Such an experience of going from cultural power to obscurity that could have caused him to become disillusioned. I know many Christians who seem and feel very disillusioned these days. But Owen faithfully plotted on till the end. And he did, he did so not only suffering those cultural losses, but his wife Mary bore him 11 children who all preceded him in death. And he pressed on in seeking to partner with other Christians and churches for the glory of God. And despite all those tribulations, we read that one of the last things that Owen was doing at the end of his life approached was seeking to grow in his communion with God. John Piper writes this. Near the end, Owen said to his friend, O brother Payne, the long-for-wished day is come at last, in which I shall see the glory in another manner than I have ever done or was capable 
of doing in this world. Friends, that is what Christian partnerships should lead to. Our commitment to each other in the local church, spilling over to other faithful churches, and those partnerships should flow from a growing longing to see God more glorified. Not to build our kingdoms or our cultures or our political party, but to build his kingdom of citizens of heaven. That is, he calls people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Would that be true of us? Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the examples we see from the early church who sought so faithfully to live for you in the midst of trying times. For, for how they teach us, Lord, to, to prioritize partnering with your people, of seeing and seeking your glory, and of being able to put aside so many of the earthly and political concerns of our age. Lord, would you help us to be those who are always seeking to partner, always seeking to see your name lifted high in our lives, in our local church, and in those around us. And we pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.